Okay? Got me now. Yeah. Right. Um, the observation I want to make is this. I think that I'm noticing that our society, which is all supposed to be about love, is becoming much more unforgiving. And especially in the age of social media. So if you make a mistake, you are done. You are absolutely finished. It's recorded, it's kept, and it's used against you forever. If uh, someone does something wrong at work, someone does something wrong in politics, someone, and it's like we think people are not ever going to do anything wrong. And I think we've become incredibly harsh And ironically, for a society that's supposed to be about tolerance, we become incredibly judgmental. And we bear a lot of grudges. Now, what do I mean by bearing a grudge? I think my favorite personal story of bearing a grudge is the man in Brora who was in his late 50s, who when I asked him to come to church, he said, I'm not coming to your church. I hate that church. And I said, why? because of what it did to me. What did it do to you? When he was nine years old, he got the wrong Sunday school prize. And he hadn't forgotten it for 50 years. And that was... Now, we can have grudges about many, many different things. I once met somebody who said that they they hated someone, they didn't like what they were doing, um, and they didn't get on together. And I said, well, what did they do to you? And they said, you know this, I can't remember now, but it was bad. Um... We can bear grudges incredibly long, and I think we live in a very unforgiving society. Now, what we're going to look at this evening, and I keep saying this in terms of the practical teaching in Romans, but this is true. It's true for me, and it's true for you. If you and I could put this into practice, then it would dramatically and radically change our lives. So, Romans 12, let's go to verse 14. And Paul, after saying, you know, your mind is to be renewed, you offer your bodies, you serve humbly in the body, body of Christ. And then as we saw this morning, the 10 principles or 10 rules for Christian living within, within the, the family of God and within our own families. And then verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I guess it's a very personal question. I don't expect you to answer. But um, is there anyone right now that you would really like to take revenge on? You know, you, you just... You would rejoice if something bad happened to them, and you would actually quite like to do it yourself. Uh, I, 
for my sins, get involved in a lot of discussions with people and uh, I received a, a, a letter from someone which wasn't very pleasant and very frustrating and it was also a bit dumb and I thought, right, you are, you're dead meat. I am going to massacre you. And then you have to prepare something like this and you realize that's probably not what Paul had in mind. How do we react when people treat us badly? And do we ever desire to take revenge? Now, I like reading history, and I I thought this was a good illustration of where that leads. In fact, we don't even need history because I think uh, today I was just getting glimpses of what's going on in Israel and in Gaza just now. So the Palestinians lobbed 400-plus rockets into Israel. Now the Israelis are firing back, and it will escalate. In 1941, Hitler and the Nazis invaded Russia, and it wasn't just war, it was total war. They annihilated villages, not just with the Jews, though that did come. The scale of atrocities was quite astonishing. If you were a Russian soldier, how would you behave? Well, Stalin recognized that revenge was an incredibly powerful motive. And so from 1942 onwards, there was unrelenting propaganda. For example, this, do not count days, do not count miles, count only the number of Germans you have killed. Kill the German. This is the cry of your Russian earth. Kill the German. This is your mother's prayer. Do not waver. Do not let up. Kill. And that came from the government. Russian political officers used a revenge score. There's one poster in one Russian battalion which read this. We are now getting revenge for our 775 relatives who were killed, for 909 relatives who were taken away to slavery in Germany, for 748 burnt down houses, and for 303 destroyed farms. And so there was great death and there was great destruction. Anthony Beaver's account of the taking of Berlin by the Russian troops is utterly horrific. Over three million German women were raped because rape is still very much, was then and is still now, a weapon of war. Now, what the Nazis did in Germany was unspeakably evil, but the response of the Russians was also unspeakably evil. Either way, evil triumphs. Paul is talking about how do we overcome evil from what may seem to us the very trivial to the absolutely massive And the answer that he gives is hard because he says revenge is not the way to overcome evil, but good is the way to overcome evil. And in the course of talking about this, he talks about what it is to live in harmony and whether international or national or in our own city or churches or homes or places of work. What we look at tonight is, let me also say this, completely impossible unless the Spirit of God is within you. And even when the Spirit of God is within you, uh, it's sometimes very, very difficult. Um, Maybe you're just naturally a very forgiving person. Uh, I'm not, and this is difficult. It's difficult, but it's Christ enables and Christ empowers. So, Three things, very simple. Number one, we have to have a sincere love for those who oppose us. Bless those who persecute you. Lloyd-Jones says this, the world does not object to church members 
But if you are truly Christian, born again, with the new nature in you, you'll be attacked because of your new nature. People think, well, you know, if Christians were just so much nicer, if we were good people, then other people would like us and more people would become Christians. I think the more Christian we are, the more, the more we irritate and annoy people. And the harder it is. Jesus was, I'm not sure this is the right word, the goodest person on earth, the best person on earth. Jesus went around doing good. Jesus was compassionate. And it's so interesting sometimes when you're discussing with people and you argue with them and they say, that's not very Christ-like. You think, yeah. But lots of people said to Jesus that he wasn't Christ-like in the way that they mean it. And they killed him. They crucified him. And he said to us, what they've done to me, they'll do to you. So there are those who oppose us. There are those who hate. And it's a horrible thing to be hated by anybody or to realize how much people actually dislike you. It's a horrible thing to hate. I mean, if you've ever suddenly realized that you've got this intense dislike, this intense hatred for somebody, it's a, it's, it's a horrendous thing. But what did Jesus say? You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's why it's so distressing that that boy in California went from his church to kill people in a synagogue thinking, if he really did think this, that he was doing something that was Christian. How is that possible? Even supposing the Jews, which they were not, were his enemy, he still had to, to love them and to bless them and not to curse them. Blessing and cursing in the Bible is very important. Blessing means you wish well. It, literally, speak them good. Ask good for them. In Luke 9, 51, Jesus, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. In other words, they're a bunch of racists. And he said, we don't want Jews here. Get out. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to deal with the racists? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned to James and John, and he rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. To have a sincere love for people who oppose us, how? Go back in Romans to Romans 5.10. Why we were still God's enemies, he sent his son to die for us. Why we were still his enemies. I think one of the things that maybe helps here is that this is not telling you to like them or to like what they're doing. But I think it is telling you to treat the sin and the sinner very uh, differently. You should want their salvation. I was, um, 
asked some, by somebody one time when I wrote the Dawkins letters, you must hate Richard Dawkins. And my answer to that was very straightforward. Number one, I don't hate Richard Dawkins because he's opened up the door for me to tell people about Jesus. So I'm very thankful for that. But number two, I don't particularly like the guy, but I'm not allowed to hate him. And I pray that he would be converted. I pray for his salvation. It's not quite at the level of Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament church, who as he was being stoned to death, and you just have to think about this, he's been stoned to death. He, he's not this, is not, this is not a pleasant form of death. He's being stoned to death, death, and he prays that the Father would forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. That's, that's, an, that's an extraordinary prayer in those circumstances. And by that standard, I think most of us would hold up our hands and say, do you know this, that tiff I have in the office, that hurt I've had from my brother or sister, that trouble in the church is minuscule compared with that. How do I find it so hard to forgive So, we have to have a sincere love for those who oppose us. Secondly, we've got to live in harmony. Verses 15 and 16. Live in harmony. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Literally, think, living in harmony is think the same thing towards one another. It's not just concerned about what we say or do, but also what we think. There are many times in your Christian life, if you are a Christian, that you will have said very nice things about people and you will have thought very bad things about them. Um, it is it is difficult. People rub you up the wrong way. I have a very, very good personal self-defense mechanism. And it's this. I work on the assumption that all of you love me until you prove otherwise. Um, that's, that's not very um, wise, and not true. And sometimes I think you'd be really shocked and surprised, or we would be really shocked and surprised what other people thought about us. I remember one time I was speaking at a conference and I heard a couple of the other speakers. I was in my room, I was tired, and I heard a couple of the other speakers just in the corridor outside and they were speaking about me. And I went to stand up to basically tell them not to do it because I was there. And then I heard what they said and realized I couldn't stand up and tell them because what they were saying was pretty horrible. And I thought, wow, that's what you really think. It's really disturbing. And I I think many of us can be like that. Uh, I find myself often uh, like that. So how do we live in harmony towards one another? Look what 1 Peter says, 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. And I think the key there is in verse 15 about rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. It's empathy. It's feeling other people's feelings. Love never stands alone from other people's joys and pains. If you've lost a child, you can empathize far better with someone else who loses a child. If you, I think, learn to think Christ-like, then it's a burden 
because you will bear other people's pain as well. And that's hard to do. In one sense, I think it's probably easier to weep with those who weep. But to rejoice with those who rejoice, I think that's a bit harder. And I'll tell you why it's a bit harder. Because of jealousy. And I think sometimes because we rejoice at things we shouldn't rejoice at. Look at them, they got their comeuppance. And maybe sometimes we weep over things we ought not to weep over. I think the opposite of this rejoicing is envy, and the opposite of the weeping is gloating. And I ask you, as I ask myself, do you rejoice when others do well and get praise? Or do you say, what about me? Should have been me. Or even secretly or not so secretly, hope that they head for, they're heading for a fall. Um, in Australia, they have this phrase called tall poppy syndrome. So if you're a poppy in a field and you're taller than the others, they'll cut you down to size. But they ain't got nothing on us Scots. We know how to do that better than anybody else. We know how to put ourselves down, but we know also how to put others down. And that's a shame because as you read through the New Testament letters especially, you just don't find that attitude, for example, in Paul as we get into Romans 16. He, he, he's, he's going to list a whole bunch of people and he's not thinking, oh, well, I better be careful in case I leave that one out or I leave this one out. He's just opening his heart and saying, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for that one. But we, you know, it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard and, and the, the pettiness can be a real problem. And I think tied in with this as well is this Humility, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's very interesting. The AV had it, condescend to men of low estate. James 1.10 says this, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he'll pass away like a wild flower. My brothers and sisters, says James, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I've seen this. In the church, I've seen someone come in with a friend or a guest who's, who's wealthy and who's maybe even famous, and they think they should be treated specially and get really upset if they're not. But why should they be seated specially? And why shouldn't the poorest and the most humble be welcome? I'm, I'm not talking about being patronizing or anything like that. But let's say someone comes in who's at the end of their tether, who's a drug addict, who's just absolutely struggling with everything. Why are they not as welcome as someone who comes in and who you say, wow, if they joined our church, that would be a real credit to us. That'd be a real blessing, wouldn't it? Well, why can't the drug addict joining the church not be a real blessing? I was intrigued by, the, by what Lloyd-Jones said about this because um, he was in the middle of London and I, I, I wasn't expecting him to say this. But he says this. Why are the masses, the so-called working class people, untouched by the gospel and outside the church? 
The answer they give to you is that the church is a snobbish society, that it is a class-conscious society. So often the impression is given that the ministry consists of those who are in some kind of continuing Oxford and Cambridge club, and that the people are, as it were, down below somewhere. This is what destroys the Christian faith and is indeed a denial of the Christian gospel. Class snobbery easily comes in and easily affects us. You know, let's think about the work in Charleston. I'll bet you that many of us have a kind of attitude that, oh, this is good work because it's working amongst the poor. Well, do you think the people who live in Charleston are somehow lower than where you live? Maybe you do live in Charleston. They're not, but there is an attitude that I think is deeply ingrained in our culture where people like to talk about the poor, and yet there's this fundamental inequality in terms of status, and and the gospel wipes that away, wipes it away. I find just, to me, astonishing the worldly thinking that's come into the evangelical church, which says, you know this, let's go and plant churches in, in the wealthy and the areas where the influencers come, and then there'll be a trickle-down effect to the rest of society. So a, a church in the center of Edinburgh or a church in, in Kensington in London or whatever is, is likely, you say, it would be more valuable because it reaches the influencers and then that will permeate through the whole of society. Really, that's not to think Christianly. It's not that people in Charleston or housing estates are any worse or any better. But God could just as easily raise up from these housing estates as he could from universities, people who will glorify his name and who will change our culture and society. So when he says here, be willing to associate with people of low position, he's not saying, now, you'd be patronizing to them. And, and he's saying, this is what you are in the church. And whereas your old life said you were separate from these people, now it's saying you're not separate from these people. You're all one in Christ Jesus. He also says here, don't be conceited. And the phrase has this, don't be wise about yourselves. Don't talk to yourself about yourself and congratulate yourself on how wise you are. Oh, I'm brilliant. I did that really well. Maybe you, you wouldn't say that out loud because our culture's maybe not keen on that. But in actual fact, you may, you may think it. Um, again, I'm not making a political point, but I just feel it's, it, it's quite indicative of our culture that we can have a president of the United States who will who genuinely thinks he is the greatest. You know, great men, great women are humble. I lay it down as a first proposition that the greatest of all the sins is the sin of intellectual pride, says Lloyd-Jones. I'm too smart for these people. I've met people in this city, in this area, who, uh, when we were doing door-to-door sometime, I I remember meeting some people who said, no, no, we can't go to your church because it's too thick. We're too clever for you. 
We're too clever for Christianity, and we're certainly too clever for your kind of church. Evangelicals, enthusiasts, free church. Well, pride. I'm not sure Lloyd-Jones is right, but I'm, I'm not sure he's wrong either. Pride was the sin of the devil, intellectual pride, yes, and others. And it was the sin of the Garden of Eden. It was the sin of Adam and Eve thinking they knew better than God. In our culture, we are faced with an enormous amount of that intellectual pride. We have vast knowledge and little wisdom. We don't know how to apply that knowledge. Let me suggest this to you, especially those of you who are at university or those of you who are studying. The truly great scholar is someone who is modest. Not, not someone who says, oh, I'm rubbish, I'm useless, I can't do it. But somebody who realizes that as they study, the one thing that they are finding out is how little they know. And all of us as Christians, we are to walk humbly with God. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's the wisdom of this world and there's the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God begins with the fear of God. The wisdom of God, according to James, and that's why I think this ties in here perfectly, is first of all peaceable. You seek peace. You don't seek a fight. You seek peace. It's, it's not intolerant. It's full of mercy and good works. It's not prejudice. We do not prejudge people because of their appearance. We do not prejudge people because of their backgrounds or because of their skin color or because of their gender. And it's quite shocking when you go into a different culture. Um, I remember going to the southern U.S., and I think, I mean, wonderful people. But I saw one, at one time just something that profoundly disturbed me. It was, in some parts of it anyway, we found it to be deeply misogynistic without even knowing it. And I thought, I wonder what's in our culture and in my life that is prejudicial in a, you know, in a completely wrong way. But the wisdom we are to have from God means that we will not be prejudiced. We will not make judgments about people. Again, um, I went to visit in one of the housing schemes in Dundee, somebody I was asked to go and visit. And I went, and it was, um, it was a wee bit rough. And I'll tell you how rough it was. I got out of my car, and this boy came up to me, and he says, 50p, what's your car, mister? I says, listen, son. I'm just going to that house there, and if a finger is laid on my car, you're going straight to the police. And, uh, you know, it was, just, it was just interesting. And I went into the house and sitting in this just normal council house, and uh, it's an elderly gentleman, 70 years old, and he said to me, do you want to come up to my bedroom and see my books? Which I thought, this is weird. And I, was, I just thought, this is, this is, you know, very odd. And I went up to, I did, I went up to his bedroom. I could not believe it. He had 2,000 books. He's just, he was just a wonderful guy. He, had, he was a communist cinema projectionist. He's, he's long dead. He used to write into the newspaper, and I used to write in and, and disagree with him, and that's how we ended up uh, going to see one another, or I went, ended up going to see him. And there you had Charles Dickens, all of Charles Dickens, all this. And he was just a working-class lad who had this fun, phenomenal ability and knowledge. And I just, I, I, I went downstairs and I felt really humbled. I thought, well, I was judging him by his circumstances. I was judging him by where he lives. I was judging him by his job. That's ridiculous. It's just wrong. And yet I think we, we so easily do that 
all the time. But there's a wisdom that comes from God. Uh, We are to live at peace as well. So that verse 18, live at peace with everyone as far as it's possible to you. We take pains, says Paul to the Corinthians, to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. That's interesting too, isn't it? We want to do what's right in the eyes of men, obviously not when it conflicts with what the Lord wants. And you'll notice there is where as far as it depends on you, we can't compromise God, we can't compromise his word, we cannot be compliant with other people's sin, we cannot refuse the offense of the cross, but nonetheless, we, we are to be peaceable people. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort to live in peace. So the final thing is just simply verses 17, 19, and 20. Do not seek to maintain peaceful relationships by doing what is right and do not take revenge. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Two basic principles in there. First is the principle of non-retaliation, not taking revenge. Whoever hits you on the right cheek, offer him the other one. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Yeah, someone hits you, someone insults you, someone says something against you, someone gossips you. Instinctively, you want to hit back. You want to say something back. Now, let me be a little bit careful here. This is not saying you don't seek justice. It's not saying you just blandly agree with everybody. It's not saying that you you can't challenge people. But it's saying that your motivation in all of this can never, ever be revenge. Why? Revenge doesn't work. To refuse to repay evil is to refuse to inflame a quarrel. It's positive peacemaking. It's not even, um, you know, passive-aggressive. Do you know what passive-aggressive is? Bless people, it says. When someone on social media, a Christian on social media says to me, bless you, I think, oh, that's awful. Because that's not what they mean. But they think that somehow they're fulfilling this. That's, that's not a blessing. They're, they're, there's, a, there's a passive-aggressive that you can have, but it's positive peacemaking. Now, the other thing about revenge, and this is for Christians, why we can do this, it's unnecessary. Leave room for God's wrath. God is sovereign and just. So he quotes Deuteronomy 32, uh, 35, and Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. God will punish, he says. God will bring justice. The judging of evil is essential, but that's the prerogative of God. Now, next week, we'll see why the state gets involved in that. But I don't have the right to seek vengeance. Suppose someone murdered my nearest and dearest. I don't have the right to kill them. We don't have the right to seek vengeance in any sense. Leave room for God's wrath. Calvin says this, we give place to wrath only when we wait patiently for the proper time for our deliverance, praying in the meantime that those who now trouble us may repent and become our friends. 
And I think tied in with this as well, we mustn't think of ourselves only. I used to say this about myself, and I realize it's a stupid thing to say. And I encourage you not to, not to do this. You know the kind of person says, I always speak my mind. Well, don't. You don't have the right to always speak your mind. Your mind's filthy and corrupt and rotten. We don't really want to hear what's on your mind all the time. What if what's on your mind is cruel and callous? Maybe you need to learn to keep silent. There's a time to speak and there's a time to keep silent. But we boast, oh, I always speak my mind. Usually people who speak like that get incredibly offended if someone speaks their mind about them speaking their mind, if you see what I mean. We seek to live at peace with all people. It's not always possible. It's not. But we can try. But he goes further than that. He says you've got to do what is right. You've got to literally do the good things. This is essential Christianity. Not only not doing your enemy any harm, but actually doing them good. Because when you lose control of yourself, you're finished. So you feed the enemy. The failure to do good is itself a kind of retaliation. That's what I mean by the passive-aggressive. I just let them stew. What are the burning coals? Some people have this idea that it's, you know, it's a way of punishing people because burning coals doesn't sound very nice, does it? Stimulate shame and repentance or future punishment or a symbol of judgment. But there was a, a, an ancient Egyptian ritual of this time in which a penitent would carry burning coals on his head as evidence of the reality of his repentance. And so it's been described as a dynamic symbol of a change of mind which takes place as a result of a deed of love. In other words, the burning coals are this, that somebody attacks you, somebody hates you, somebody mistreats you, and you, you wham them back, and it just escalates. But the Christian way is you treat them with love, and suddenly, what? Why are you doing this? Why are you behaving like this? What are you up to? What's your game? What's the mind games? Does this mean that we lose any idea of justice? No, not at all. We must seek justice. Does it mean we can never get angry? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean we don't get hurt? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is, and as I said, we'll see about this next week in terms of how the state intervenes with this kind of stuff. But we look at prevention, not revenge. Revenge is to be left to God. Justice is to be left to God. Now, there's no guarantee that if we behave like this, we will turn our enemies into friends. But there is a guarantee that if we attack our enemies, they will stay our enemies. There's also a guarantee this. If we follow Christ in this, we will have victory. It is the only way to overcome evil, and this is only possible to those who follow Jesus. A life of faith and love for God and for everyone molded by the transformation that's spoken of in chapter 1 and 2. Humility, helpfulness, and peace, even to those who have injured you. Now, I was greatly struck, I've mentioned it many times, by the late Christopher Hitchens, who as an atheist said that the one thing about Christianity, well, lots of things about Christianity really annoyed him, but one thing really annoyed him because he thought it was obscene was the command to love your enemies. And you know this, Hitchens was brilliant, because he was quite right. In this world's terms, loving your enemies is both impossible 
and seems to do so much harm. But in the, in, in the terms of the Bible, in the terms of Christ, loving your enemies is the only way to go. And it works. There's no neutrality in this. You either repay evil with evil, and thus you're sucked ever deeper into a vortex of evil, or you overcome evil. Luther, men commonly regard as the victor the one who has the last word and deal the last blow. I could say the last tweet or something. Whereas a matter of fact, he who is the last to inflict pain is the one who is worse off. For the evil remains with him while the other is done with it. Evil grows only through being requited and indulged. So here's the Christian response to this. It's not to curl up in a ball. It's not when we're attacked to just be defensive. It's to be on the attack, but we attack by blessing and by seeking the best and by doing good. It's what's called the masterpiece of love. Calvin, uh, as always, just gets this so perfectly. He says, although there is hardly anyone who has made such an advance in the law of the Lord that he fulfills this precept, no one can boast that he is the child of God or glory in the name of a Christian who's not partially undertaken this course and does not struggle daily to resist the will to do the opposite. Someone next door to you starts playing really loud music, and it's bad music. It'd be okay if it was decent music, but it's just awful music. It's Beyonce or something. Sorry, any Beyonce fans. So, you, having impeccable taste in music, decide, I'm going to crank up my stereo and blast them with Led Zeppelin or, or something of equally high taste, Gallic Psalms or something. And there's something satisfying about doing that, to be honest. Well, maybe you've never done that, but there's something satisfying about doing that. And that's a trivial example. But we can be annoyed, we can be upset, but we are to resist the temptation to do what they do. Just a couple of other things maybe to apply this in terms of the church. This is a real test of our Christianity because I think it shows we are the children of God. We do have to learn to speak the truth in love. We do have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And I think it's very important that we do not have a quarreling church. I, my own experience over the years in Scotland has been there have been more churches split by personalities fighting with one another than they've split over doctrine. And often the splits over doctrine tend to be tied in with the personalities. You know, you, there's just so much stuff going on in our lives that sometimes we transfer that into religious talk, and we transfer that into upset about secondary issues within the church. Was it really that important that we sang the wrong tune? Is it really that important that the communion table was in the wrong place? The things that people get really, really wound up about indicate something about us. We must not have a quarreling church. We must have a church with our differences and a church with our disagreements. I think that's got to be. But we mustn't have a church where there are different parties and where people are seeking revenge and people are trying to get their way and where there's politics. I think of all kinds of politics that I've seen, and I've seen many different kinds, politics within the church, manipulating, maneuvering, it's just, that's the worst. 
And we must never, ever seek personal vengeance. We must never desire personal harm to anybody. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. And then Paul says this, may it not be held against them. This guy attacked me, attacked the gospel, caused so much disruption in the church. And when I was attacked, not one of you came to my support. And then he says this, may it not be held against them. You know, when you come to the Lord's table and you sit at the Lord's table, you recognize the body and blood of the Lord. And recognizing the body of the Lord is recognizing what Jesus did on the cross. But it's also recognizing this, his church. And tied in with Matthew about when you come to the altar, if you've got anything against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and then go and forgive your brother. I, you know this. There are Christians here who eating away at you for for years has been that slight, that hurt, that wound, that behavior, and you've never let it go. Never thought I'd quote Frozen in the sermon, but let it go. You have to. Let the Lord deal with it. It could have been horrendous. In fact, it could probably be a whole lot worse than you ever anticipated. They probably meant to do you a whole lot more harm than you ever took on board. But let the Lord deal with it. Let it go, because you can deal with it. And for you to carry that burden, it's going to eat you up and destroy you. And believe you me, I'm speaking as somebody who knows. The sleepless nights. The fact that you know you're going against Jesus Christ, and yet you still do it. It's funny, isn't it? We're quite prepared to say that this sexual sin is, is, a, is a dreadful sin, and oh, no, no, we're not going to do that, whilst at the same time we disobey something which is mentioned more by Jesus. This attitude that we have towards one another. I believe that um, the Lord will greatly bless us personally and collectively if we put these words into practice. I'm pleased, I am not, and I don't think Paul is, that's why he has all the stuff that's gone in Romans before, because he's saying you've got to see where Jesus is. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to trust Jesus. And this is really what it means. This is where the rubber hits the road. But I think if we put it into practice, there'll be some phenomenal stuff. And sorry, I see uh, my time has gone, so I'll just say this. One of the most amazing books I've ever read it's a book called The Korean Pentecost by Bruce Hunt. And again, I know I've told this story, but it just, it's, just, it, it's the one, I've almost got the page in the book memorized where the, after the Second World War, I think it was, the missionaries were praying and they were praying in, in North Korea. And they had a, an all-night prayer meeting where the Korean elders were there and the missionaries and the Korean ministers. And uh, you know, things were going quite well. And then this elder came down to the front and said, I would, I would like to confess something. And he turned to one of the missionaries and said, I hate you, and I've hated you. And you, you should read the description, because it talks about how the heavens opened, and people started crying, and 
people started confessing their sin because there was a lot of hatred and it suppressed a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness. Well, maybe the closer we get to Christ, the more we'll feel free to let it go and to overcome our hatreds and to forgive our enemies, even the ones who are closest to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. And help us to be people who are wise with the wisdom that brings peace and is full of mercy. Help us to love our enemies and those who hate us. Lord, we ask for your protection. And we don't ask that you would deny justice. But we ask that in, in justice you would remember mercy. And we pray that each of us would know the experience of having people who were once bitter foes becoming our dearest brothers and sisters. We pray for this church that where there is anger and bitterness and hurt and woundedness that you would grant us the grace and the ability and the courage to seek forgiveness where we have wronged and to forgive where we have been wronged. And may we do it all looking to Jesus in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing the song before the throne of God above. Um, and I like this for this particular, I wasn't intending to preach on this this evening, but as you probably gathered, if I'd done that this this morning, we would have had an all day or, um, but I like this because before the throne of God above, I have a strong, perfect plea. That's who we plead to for justice. We just go to the Lord. So let's uh, stand and sing this to God and then please remain standing.